readjust my mic stand just a little bit here. Oh, there we sure. go. I like that voice, Peter. You should talk should like just, that more often. I'm here on the podcast with my good friends, and we're going to talk about the Olympic Winter Games. <laughs> <laughs> Which uh, Winter Game is your favorite? Uh, 1996 Lillehammer. <laughs> Welcome to I'd Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, aspiring one-word reviewer of One Hit Wonders. Oh, I, I'm deeply interested in reading those, honestly. <laughs> it's not a bad idea. I feel like there could be a whole sub-podcast with that theme. It'd be very short episodes, but... I'm into it. That's that's what the people want. Five-minute episodes, tops. I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles, killer of houseplants given to me as presents. And I'm Peter Cook, proud private projectionist for Pier Paolo Pasolini. Keep it going. You can figure out a few more words. Keep it going. <laughs> Where are some more P words? <laughs> Perturbed at your plan <laughs> to put me on the spot. <laughs> Beautiful. I knew you had it in you. That's all I have. Jeremy. Sean, true or false? It's your big, it's your big week, bud. True or false, Sean? Are you ready? Okay. Fine. We, you ask the questions first. We had to delay the recording of this podcast because you were headbanging to this album so hard. <laughs> yeah. I, that is possible because okay. I woke up on the day of recording and couldn't move my head. So it's possible that I was dreaming about this band all night and headbanging in my sleep and that was what the problem was so i'm not going to rule that possibility out it also could have been that you were just like shaking your head no so violently since you hate this album so much true or false that is also a distinct possibility <laughs> there's so many different things that could have been happening to me in my sleep saturday night it's where your true feelings come out <laughs> in my sleep on saturday night Yes. It's true. That's okay. I do all my reality processing. This is, this is a lot of build up for the people to tell them that I have brought Big Country's sophomore slump album, Steel Town. Well, you did some alliteration yep. there yourself. And the th <laughs> yeah, it just, it, it was right off the dome, as they say. All right. Well, Would you say that you were inspired by our good friend Peter Cook? I was and deeply his frequent inspired. alliterative titles. Deeply inspired. Mm. How could you not be deeply inspired by Peter Cook? Oh, I like where this episode is going. <laughs> we could forget the big country and just keep it on this track. Just talk about Big Peter. <laughs> wow, Sean. Now we got a. Now this is a rated M podcast. <laughs> I mean, if you want to take it there, that's it's whatever. All but right, so here's a song. My intentions were purely innocent. Yeah. A song called East of Eden about a very uninnocent world. Hmm. 
We'll see if they're about John Steinbeck or James Dean. Definitely Steinbeck. That is a completely different vibe from the one big country song that I knew before you suggested doing this album, you know, which of wait, which, which big country <laughs> song did you know? Which one could it possibly be? Uh, in a big something country. <laughs> I don't know if that's right, but we'll go with it. That is true. This whole album felt like a reaction to their first album at some level. The first album, The Crossing, was not... It was sort of a hit. That song, In a Big Country, was a big hit. And there was a lot of buzz that grew around the band Big Country. But most of the buzz was like, the guitars sound like bagpipes and... (laughs) They were being compared with U2 and being like vaulted as these. This is really funny to me reading this actually in the early 80s that they're the saviors of the guitar. This is like, I feel like that's become a silly cliche every like five to 10 years. There's like a scene of bands that are the saviors of the guitar as if it ever went away. (laughs) <laughs> right it's it's about to die who's, out who's gonna save rock and roll guys again yeah so they uh, did not like that imagery and being kind of pigeonholed like that so this album has a lot of like they tried to strip some of that away and they made what i think is a great album some people think it's great <laughs> some people think it's great some people 
are unsure. Some people aren't going to say definitively that they don't like it. Well, Sean. They're certainly not going to say it's a bad record, but some people, namely me, are unconvinced at this point. Sean, just listen to me. Hear me out for a second. I'm listening. Take, take a step back from your immediate reactions to this and think about what else you know of, of rock and roll in the early 1980s. I think they're trying to do a little, something a little more socially conscious here, like a certain other artist that you really admire from that time. Oh, I know where this is going. Could, okay, who could still listening. Who, who could that be, Sean? I mean, you know, in, in that alone, I, I guess, uh, Jeremy, what are the some of the themes they're touching on in that song in particular? In that song, East of Eden, and in a few different songs on this album, they're digging into like working class struggles and the theme of the album steel town is looking at scottish people because they're from scotland i don't know if we cover that uh who move from the countryside into the city to work at all these steel mills and factories and then this album is about the back end of that where these factories are all closing down and these people are stuck in these horrible, grimy cities in a ruined landscape. And that's, you know, the uh, environment of this album, I guess. Okay. Mm-hmm. I've got a few people in mind who this is supposed to make me think of. Peter, Who? where are you leading me on this? It's definitely John Cougar Mellencamp, Sean. <laughs> oh, wait, no, no. My favorite. The boss. Yep. Yeah. I definitely recognize some elements of the boss in here. And like part of why I was saying that I remain unconvinced, but I don't want to say I don't like it, is the things that I liked about it kind of reminded me of other albums or artists that were not an immediate grab for me. Uh, the other that one that I kind of was getting some comparisons to this might be a bit of a stretch, but this album reminds me a little bit of Zen arcade by Husker do, which is another record that I do love, but I did not like it the first time I heard it. Mm. Actually, although that's a much more punk album, the production in a weird way, now that you say that I can immediately hear the comparison and uh, yeah, and they're both like guitar heavy. They're very (laughs) dense. You know, they're kind of uh, angry and socially conscious, but the more you listen, the more you pick up on the melody of it and the kind of buried catchiness underneath. So I'm not ruling this record out yet. I'm also not saying that I think it's as good as Zen Arcade because it's probably not. (laughs) But uh, yeah, you know. (laughs) Well, as much as there are similarities, I think that's apples and oranges at the same time. Yeah, it it really is, for sure. (laughs) Now, my real question is, did this band have like a super strong beef with the Proclaimers or what? Ooh, Scottish rivalry. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know anything about that. I found nothing to indicate that there was beef or friendship-ness between them. Well, I'm going to pretend that they are bitter rivals to this day. I think the Proclaimers would have been starting right around. What year did this album come out? This was 83. Oh, yeah. That's the year the Proclaimers formed. Wait, no, no. This was 84. The Crossing was 83. Okay. Yeah. So the the Proclaimers are really interesting because at least stateside, their success was really belated. The big song, I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles, came out in 88, but it was a hit in 1993. 
Oh wow. Yeah, they're they're like a decade removed from from big country hitting it. Yeah. And one thing to kind of turn back towards you mentioned Husker Du. What I like about big country is these are they were huge. They were huge and ascendant. They were being billed as like the next big thing. And what Stuart Adamson, the primary singer and lyricist of the band, did with that ascension was bring stories of working class people. And I have a love for pop stars who, I mean, this basically stunted their career, this album. And pop stars who give up something to get a message across have my deep uh, appreciation. I have a picture of Sinead O'Connor on my wall tearing up a picture of the Pope from that SNL thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I don't know. It's something that gets me somehow. Oh, I, I definitely understand that. And I, I have a lot of respect for what I know about the uh, intention behind this record and the move for making this dense anti-pop record as a follow-up to their hit so possible future fan here we'll see you never know let's do another song and see if we win him over a little all right i'm listening this is uh in my opinion maybe the catchiest song it's not catchy but uh it has great melodies come back to me side a track five. <laughs> oh, thank you
that to me feels like a song that Bruce Springsteen could have made. I can't even fathom how Sean doesn't love this. Yeah, I don't know. I'm so picky with rock-based music. I'm being a dead horse. I'm sorry. <laughs> These days, though, it's such a fine line between a song that grabs me and one that doesn't. But I don't know. There's just... I also, like, lyrics and message, I think, are much more resonant with the two of you guys than they are with me. As we've mentioned before, I'm always, like, more into textures and melody and tone related stuff than i am what they're talking about well here's a worthwhile question are either of you do either of you have scottish blood not that i know of uh i don't but my name has the scottish spelling of heart so hartman oh yeah well the german spelling no my first my first name oh sean that's scottish okay yeah scottish for john with the scottish spelling mm. i don't know why that was picked <laughs> see i i know uh because hartman is german correct yes it, but i obviously know some hartmans with two n's but mm-hmm. uh, shout out to nate hartman um <laughs> the, i do i i i am part scottish and i felt this with some of the other some of the other music that i've listened to that has traditional music leanings from like Ireland or Scotland that you guys don't seem as into. I really wonder if there's like an encoding in my DNA (laughs) that makes me appreciate that, that when those traditional sounds are incorporated into something more contemporary sounding. Yeah, that makes sense. Cause I know that specific element of music is something that a lot of people really look for is that strong, like very old traditional influence to the music. And that's often something that doesn't really do it for me. But Peter, how do you feel about bagpipes though? That's what I really want to know. Well, we have discussed this before on the, on the podcast and I, I wasn't sure. I think I like bagpipes more when they're guitars that are meant to sound like bagpipes. <laughs> well then have I got a band for you, bud? Yeah. Is it this band? <laughs> it is this band. <laughs> you ever heard of big country? Well, I, I, yeah, and I knew that they had that in their one big hit. They obviously, uh, that was one of the, uh, dare I say, maybe novelties of that. I'm not bothered by it continuing to happen over and over, song after song. I was today years old when I learned that their guitars were supposed to mimic the style of bagpipes, which guitars trying to sound like another instrument is something that has always fascinated me. And that's one of the reasons why I love the band television so much, because one of their primary influences was trying to make their guitars sound like saxophones. Mm, Yeah. Another big one that I know did that was the birds. They were very influenced by Miles Davis and John Coltrane. So when they went psychedelic, they were trying to make their electric 12 strings sound like the opening and closing of valves. Mm. But anyway, I, I didn't realize they were trying to sound like bagpipes. And when I read that, it made so much sense. My, I had been thinking about that before because, you know, there's the famous guitar lead line on, you know, the song In a Big Country. And I was hearing similar things in a lot of other songs. And my first thought was, well, if that was their big hit, maybe they were just trying to like recreate elements of it to score another hit. But, you know, now I know what the real intent was. Yeah. And I think, uh, obviously I feel, I I haven't heard all of the first album, but they really seem to be digging into more traditional 
folk sounds on this one. There is still, I guess, an element of uh, new wave that they they seem to get lumped into that category. Probably just the time period that they were around in. Well, the the production style is fully mid '80s guitar based new mm-hmm. wave for yeah, sure. Yeah, Steve Lillywhite produced this, correct? Yeah, and I would say to me that's the weakest point of this album. I feel that the production does not serve the heart of these songs very well. I think, honestly, if these songs were produced, you know, in a different way, this album might be like a classic album that everybody knows. But I think it, the strongest part of it, to me, is the lyricism in this album. And the words are buried mm. behind just echoing drums and like, crazy dense guitars and i'm just i'm not a super fan of steve lillywhite as a producer honestly (laughs) yeah what what other works is he famous for dave matthews band Mm, who could forget (laughs) yeah and fish and uh but more i'd say his style is known in like the 80s sound some of the good bands he worked with in my opinion XTC, the Psychedelic Furs, the Pogues. He did an album with the Talking Heads with Susie and the Banshees. He's most known for working with U2 and kind of pioneering their sound. Hmm. Well, this is all starting to make sense because so far you have named one band that I like from that list. Oh, you don't like any of those? Uh, there's one of them that I like. XTC? I guess which one? Nope. You don't like XTC? I don't dislike them, but again, I've just never been able to get it. Psychedelic Furs? Nope. You don't, the first album, man. Talking Heads. <laughs> I've tried with the Psychedelic Furs. I love Talking Heads. <laughs> yeah, of course, it's Talking Heads. Who doesn't love Talking Heads, though? Ike Turner. What? <laughs> he likes... Friend, friend of the show, Ike Turner, who at this point, the majority of our listeners are not aware of. Yeah, not but. the uh, <laughs> famous Ike Turner from like Tina Turner's husband, not that guy. This Isaac Turner, history of rock and roll and writing teacher at Kalamazoo Valley Community College. <laughs> now people can find him and ask why he doesn't like the talking heads. Yeah, ask what the fuck is wrong with him. <laughs> Peter, did you start a side business of giving shout outs to people who like pay you money, like Cameo, but for podcasts or something? Yeah. Yeah, shout out to Cameo. Word up. Oh, Lord. My goodness. Okay, well, let's get back on track here. <laughs> um, no, I agree, I agree, Jeremy. I don't think that the production serves the songs. I think this would be much better stripped down, bare-bones production. Yeah, or, I mean, it could even be, you know, this dense if the lyrics were pushed, or the vocals were pushed a little more forward, I think, as well. It could work, but... Even then, I guess, like, texturally, it doesn't really match the themes of this album. Yeah, I mean, if they were going for more of a Nebraska instead of a super dense version of Born in the USA, this might uh, might win me over. Fair enough. But I don't know if you you can kind of hear some of the guitar lines Stuart Adamson is doing in there. But John Peel, the guy who, you know, engineers the Peel Sessions declared that Stuart Adamson is the next British Jimi Hendrix. And if you listen in some of these songs, there's some solos, but not very many in this album. 
but he's a phenomenal guitar player. The next British Jimi Hendrix. No, I know they're Scotland. (laughs) Great Britain, right? Yeah, Yeah, I was uh, trying to read up on the history of Scotland and their political interaction with the UK and got very confused (laughs) and decided it's best I just don't say anything because I don't get it yet. Okay. You don't even have like the Cliff Notes version for us. What what is uh, your take in 15 seconds or less? Uh, It sounds like there is a contingent of Scots who want independence from the UK, but as of now, they're only sort of independent. Okay. Yeah, I could see how there could be a lot more going on there. You got any other thoughts before we play another track? I feel like I could hear another track soon. We could do another track. Okay. Yeah, because I'd say this album was very good, and it really knocked off their potential to become a bigger band, though. So after this album, they did a couple more albums that were not very good. Well, I don't know. Maybe they were good. They don't feel as important to me somehow. How deep do you go in their catalog? There's an album in 93 they put out called Buffalo Skinners that was good again. But the two between this one and that one were kind of not super great. How uh, how far do you plan to go into their bio? Oh, that's a good point. I'll I'll just do a quick and dirty because there's nothing too crazy here. But they're from Dunfermline, Scotland. I probably said that wrong. And formed in 1981, Stuart Adamson had a band called The Skids before that that were labeled as a punk band but don't sound very punk to my ears. But they started practicing in an abandoned warehouse and somehow they're just getting like found right away and uh, they end up opening some shows for Alice Cooper and the crowd hates them because they're there to see Alice Cooper and big country goes up there. (laughs) Then they're putting out demos and like becoming a big band out of nowhere. So I I didn't find a clear understanding of how they were able to get such access to the industry so easily. It seemed like it was a pretty straight shot from let's make a band to like putting out big hit records. Yeah. I always love that when you see a band formed like three years ago and they're already huge and you've been, you know, relentlessly pursuing music for decades with not an iota of success comparatively. Yeah. Some, some bands just get it right away. It seems. It did seem like at this point in music history, especially in anything new wave related, there was kind of an explosion of new bands that were forming and getting huge right away. It's like the industry was making a lot of money off of this new sound and just like, seemingly desperate to find more and more bands that could make that money on the current trends. So I, I imagine they probably kind of got swept up in that a little bit. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Well, here's another song. It's called Tall Ships Go. Side B, track one.
On that one, I can definitely hear a direct line from their hit to that song. Very upbeat. Surprised, I, I have no indication that that would have been a single from this. I guess it maybe maybe was a little too similar to the, the big hit. Although sometimes bands will try to follow that up. They clearly weren't doing that. This song has a disconnect between the sound of it and the message of it, but not even in that ironic way of like sad words to a happy song. It's like an energetic song about missing uh, someone who died at sea. (laughs) It just feels like not appropriately matched, but not completely flipped, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do have kind of a soft spot for songs that do that, though, that have like really heavy subject matter, but present it in a pop format or in a way where you don't initially realize how heavy the thing is that they're talking about. Yeah, I, yeah. (laughs) The boss. I like when that. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Well, I think this is, uh, I'm liking this one more and more. I don't think it's necessarily something, this formula, it'd be weird if this registered immediately with, with someone, if this is like the combination of sounds that someone's looking for. Obviously there's, did, did this speak to you pretty quickly, Jeremy, when you heard it or did it grow on you? I it was definitely a grower. I actually just found this album maybe like a month ago in an antique store and the cover of it is really what initially grabbed me and I was like, "Oh, this is that band that does that song." Without <laughs> knowing anything about the band and was really intrigued by the cover. So, I look it up online and I'm reading a little about it and I'm like, "Whoa, this album is super up my alley." And when I put it on the first time, I was like, huh, I don't know if that does it for me. But then I like <laughs> kept lit, like I kept getting urges to go back to it. And it, I just like it more and more. It's definitely a grower album. It's starting to remind me a little bit more of a band that I really have struggled to comprehend that people love. And that's Roxy music. I'm hearing a little bit of that in here. Yeah, that one never grabbed me. Yeah, I could see that. That makes sense. It's also a band that's never really grabbed me either. Yeah, they, and but people will sing like high praises of them, and that I, you know, that I respect and trust the opinion of. And uh, I'm still trying with Roxy music. And yeah, this is yeah. I feel like this. Uh, it's just enough unique elements that you aren't necessarily gonna find juxtaposed that. Uh, it's just hard to wrap your head around exactly what they're doing. And I don't, and I don't think the production necessarily assists in uh, that journey, but yeah, that's fair. But I think there are some good songs and uh, reflective contemplative lyrics. And, you know, I always try to keep in mind personally that some of my all time favorite records were albums that I did not like the first time I heard them. So I, I never like to be, the one that just like makes a decision right away and then never revisits it because you know, taste change albums unfold upon multiple listens. You never know what's going to happen. True. So I'm going to, you know, go to the end of this tale. These boys, they put out a couple more records in the eighties that are meh. And then Buffalo Skinners in 93. That's good. And they 
they're not really touring much after that. Buffalo Skinners did not sell well. It's 93, so it's like grunge eras in full swing and music like this is not at all. Though that album is like more aggressive than their previous ones. It's a little edgier, but anyways, there is... I haven't actually heard them, but Stuart Adamson, right at the end of his life, had a more country-type band called the Raphaels that he was doing with... He moved to Nashville and started doing this. So I got to check that out because he's a great songwriter, and that sounds like it would potentially really lift those songs. But unfortunately, uh, Stuart Adamson, he had issues with alcoholism in the 80s he was sober for 10 years and then it appears in around 2001 he kind of had a reading about it it reminded me of that movie leaving las vegas have you guys seen that oh yeah that's a cheery yeah flick definitely with nicholas cage and elizabeth shoe yeah it kind of like it was bringing up images of that in my mind he apparently fell off the map and started drinking a bunch in hotels and was avoiding everyone and uh, committed suicide in 2001. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the end of the year, I think I remember that. Because uh, I was vaguely aware of big country at the time. Uh, but they yeah, so. did they continue on without him? Or was that the end of the band? Uh, they are still playing to this day. I was reading that they leave a space on the stage where he would be, and they kind of form like around that space. So it's a nice little tribute to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have no idea if they're good live or not. I've never seen them live. Like I said, it was about a month ago that this band really came on my radar. So, mm-hmm. well, they're uh, thanks for putting them back on my radar. They had been on my list to dive deeper because i've heard good things from reputable people and uh there's enough here that i like for me to uh check out their first album i need to check that out uh, have you listened to that one at all jeremy the the first one with the hit? yeah the crossing <laughs> which sounds like that sounds like a bruce springsteen album title it really does <laughs> true it is there are some elements of like some social kind of commentary going on. It's more rooted in like the romanticism that a lot of 80s, you know, songs were. It's a little cleaner production wise, I'd say too. It's a little more immediately accessible. So if if you're thinking like you want to hear this band and want something more immediately accessible, check out The Crossing. This is the gold though, in my opinion. Steel Town. Steel Town. <laughs> Well, uh, and Sean, uh, you probably had a, a really good time putting together this playlist. You know, I'll say it was a fun challenge because there's there's a lot of new wave stuff that I really love, but more and more, my favorite new wave stuff is the the things that are more synthesizer based, especially as a friend of the podcast, Dan Gast, said to me one time that his favorite new wave is the stuff that sounds like video games are dying. <laughs> Wow, that's a <laughs> that kind of like that kind of like glitchy electronic synthesizer toy music type sound that some of those bands were particularly good at. One of my all time favorites of that sound is a band called Orchestral Maneuvers in the Dark, who oh. I put on the recommended playlist on Spotify. 
Yeah. Also put a band called Heaven 17. Mm. I remember. Yeah. The, which uh, band they're associated with? The Human League. Yep. Ex-Human League members. Also put a Human League song on there. So there's a good mix of guitar-heavy stuff, pop-friendly stuff, synthesizers. We got Dexy's Midnight Runners, XTC, Bruce Springsteen, of course, from his you know more controversial, less fan-favorite album, Tunnel of Love. Oh, yeah. That's a good one, though. That's one that you can still usually find pretty cheap, too. Might be a good one to do an episode on at some point, yeah. you might even say. A couple things that are not quite dollar records, but you might get lucky. Kate Bush. Um, <laughs> I want to live in that world where Kate Bush can be found for a dollar. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Just keep digging. You never know. Uh, altered Images. We put them on playlist before. Uh, the Kinks from the album that we did of theirs just a few episodes ago. The Go-Go's, who we've talked several times about doing an episode for at some point. ABC, China Crisis, Gang of Four. You know, everybody thinks about their first record entertainment, which is absolutely not a dollar record. But in the mid 80s, when they started crossing over into new wave stuff, they put out some records that are a lot easier to find and still have some really good moments on them. I love a man in a uniform. Mm hmm. Solid song. Cindy Lauper. And then, of course, ended the playlist with Big Country's massive hit, In a Big Country. You can find that by searching I'd Buy That Podcast on Spotify, all one word. You can find that playlist and all other season two playlists. Yeah, I suggested the Slade song, Run, Run Away, because they do the guitars as bagpipes on that song as well. You put that one on there, right? Uh, I did, right in between Modern English and the Human League. Mm-mm-mm. Well, I will be enjoying that playlist, and you can also... Check us out on Patreon if you'd like to support us. Patreon.com slash I'd Buy That Podcast. Definitely appreciate all the support that we've been receiving from listeners. And you can join us, say hey to us on our Facebook group, the I'd Buy That for a Dollar Facebook group, where you can share dollar records, or really whatever records. How strict are we there? How strict are our moderators? <laughs> uh, I try not to be very strict. I mean, we're mainly talking about the kind of records we would have on the podcast, but if you found a really dope record in a dollar bin and you want to just, you know, show off your score, we, we're all interested in seeing that too. Yeah, it, it still happens even in the age of discogs and the internet telling you that a record is really valuable. It's like, hey, look, Neil Young after the gold rush for a buck. There you go. Oh, I wanted to throw, I'm going to throw this in very quickly. I got this album at an antique store because with my job, I go to antique stores with this client of mine. Anyways, antique stores are a great place to dig for albums because you will find, what's the word I want to use here? Uninformed pricing, I will call it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. You got to... You got to know what you're doing because there's a lot of overpriced records, but maybe just as many underpriced records if you look hard enough. Yeah, I found like ones where it seems like they're pricing it based on how famous the person is, like records that are worth nothing, but everybody's heard of like, I don't know, random Beatles records and stuff for like 20 plus dollars and then stuff that they don't know what it is priced for super cheap. So. Go dig antique stores. A new place to dig for you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, what is the 
what is the uh, what did you select for us to go out on, Jeremy? And what do you have to say about it? I am going to leave us on just a shadow. One of the, I think this might be lyrically my favorite song in this album. It's a super downer song about being young and not having a future in front of you. You know, it's basically a punk song, but it doesn't sound punk. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can, a lot of those new wave bands that, you know, by the early to mid 80s were sounding very commercial, even like the Go-Go's who we just mentioned uh, that we put on the playlist. If you hear their early live stuff, they're clearly rooted in the LA punk scene, but obviously, you know, they honed their songwriting chops and, you know, learned to play their instruments and it sounded much more commercially viable. But, uh, you know, a lot of those bands were still singing themes that were in line with the uh, punk ethos even if they were uh much more friendly to the ears of your average listener and yeah and you said that there was their punk roots to this band yeah this song is one of the slower songs on the album though i would say much more poetic in its message yeah literate more literate that's a good way to put it nice well we'll go out on that Thank you for listening to I'd Buy That for a Dollar. My name is Peter Cook. I'm Sean Hartman. And I'm Jeremy Ruggles. Side B, track five, Just a Shadow. (laughs) 